Salo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. This is the largest tuna fishery in the world. Around 30% of global tuna supplies from our members' waters. We head over to Vietnam to get the latest on the Pacific Fisheries Commission meeting that's underway. Also, we wanted to mobilize the communities while we wait for, you know, word back from Tonga in the early days of the disaster. The year-long donation drive to Tonga comes to an end this week. And later on... Women are less likely to be in formal employment um, and therefore less likely to be members of retirement funds. A new report shows the barriers Pacific women face when accessing retirement funds. The future management of the world's largest tuna fishery is being discussed in Vietnam this week. The Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission is the custodian of the multi-billion dollar Pacific tuna industry. Its members meeting in Da Nang, Vietnam include Pacific Island countries, owners of the tuna resources and the distant water fishing nations, which include the world superpowers China and the United States of America. Kuroi Hawkins is in Da Nang and filed this report. It looks more like some kind of UN General Assembly than a meeting about fish. Hundreds of delegates from over 30 countries are participating in this first in-person meeting of the Pacific Tuna Commission since 2019. Many who could not physically make it to Da Nang are also joining online. In his opening remarks on Monday, the Executive Director of the Commission, Feletti Teo, commended member countries for their resilience and determination through the pandemic. The Tuvaluan Executive urged members to bring that same energy this week to the work that needs to be done now to help countries recovering from the impacts of COVID-19. Key issues of harvest strategy development and implementation, including a management procedure for skipjack, ongoing reforms, and progressing the important work of the various intersessional working groups on issues like electronic reporting and monitoring, crew labor standards, and transshipment review. Fishing is one of the most dangerous occupations on the planet. Recent research by the Fish Safety Foundation found that the number of people killed working in the global fishing industry is well in excess of 100,000 per year, considerably higher than any previous estimates. The outgoing chair of the Pacific Tuna Commission, South Korea's Jong-ri Riley Kim, told member states and territories they needed to step outside of their comfort zones and do more to improve working conditions in the Pacific tuna fishery. And we no longer can afford to say it is not our responsibility to deal with issues that are not directly related to fishery resources management. Because indeed, fisheries impacts are inextricably linked with issues involving the people and the environment. We will need to push our boundaries to address overarching issues such as labor standards. Although hosts of the meeting, Vietnam are actually not full members of the commission. They come under a probationary-type grouping called Cooperating Non-Members and are in fact the first non-member country to host the meeting. In welcoming delegates on Monday, the Director-General of Vietnam Fisheries, Tran Dinh Luan, reiterated their aspiration of becoming a full member in the future. Speaking through a translator, Dr Tran said his country was committed to the sustainable use and long-term conservation of the region's tuna resources. At the same time, I would also like to express my hope that in the coming time, Vietnam will actively participate and contribute more effectively in the regional fishery management 
mechanism of WCPFC as a full member of WBCFC. As well as the main business of the Commission, there are a flurry of bilateral, multilateral and interagency meetings taking place on the fringes. Although thousands of miles from the tuna-rich waters of the Pacific, the commitments and deals being brokered this week will all have a huge bearing on the future of the fishery and, by extension, the peoples of the Pacific. Following the January 15th volcanic eruption, the Tongan diaspora came together to support their families and friends in Tonga. Nanwazis was more exemplified by the coordinated efforts of the Tongan community in Auckland. A massive donation drive was organised by Auckland's Aotearoa Tonga Response Group, who provided hundreds of bins to people to fill up with food and other essential items. The group sent the bins to Tonga in containers. The year-long donation drive officially ends this week, with the last container set to arrive in Tonga on Friday. Whenau Whanua spoke with the group's Deputy Director Manase Loa, who will head to Tonga this week to help coordinate the distribution of goods from the container. Your association has contributed tremendously to humanitarian efforts in Tonga. You've spearheaded a year-long donation drive, and this trip this week marks the end of this donation drive. Could you describe this trip a bit more? Our group has been um, working since the eruption on the 15th of January. Not long after that, we formed our Aotearoa uh, Tonga Relief Committee, and uh, we started operating out of Mount Smart, helping families in New Zealand put drums of uh, urgently needed provisions like um, water, noodles, you know, food, to urgently give to Tongans um, after the disaster in Tonga because there was a, a cut in communications for almost a month. So we weren't sure of the extent of the damage and how many lives were lost or impacted. But we wanted to mobilize the communities while we wait for you know, word back from Tonga in the early days of the disaster. So so we've sent around 90 uh, 20-foot equivalent containers to Tonga. This last um, container closes this phase of our operations um, for the volcanic uh, disaster relief. So we'll be leaving on Friday. Uh, that's myself, Makahokovalu Pailate, who's our treasurer for our committee, and Suwana uh, Mwimuyata, the secretary. And I noticed you you mentioned in your press release that you were donating forklifts. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also um, uh, some footwear and uh, provisions for school kids. So we've got brand new jandals from um generous donor here in New Zealand that we want to give to school kids. We've got 5,000 pairs of, um, of jandals to give out. And uh, as you know, in the islands, uh, that's, that's the most common footwear used by kids at, at school. So we'll be donating them, and they're high quality as well. Who's donating these goods? Uh, the donors want to be anonymous, so they don't want to be identified, but they are local uh, Kiwi businesses who have donated. The forklifts came from a number of sources. Tube Mills was one in Wellington who donated uh, a number of forklifts, and uh, these are the last few forklifts that we are taking over to head off to the outer islands of Hawaii. It's not just Tongatapu, um, you're going to the other islands? We'll, we'll be based in Tongatapu, but the uh, forklifts are, are destined to, to go to the outer islands. But we will be in, uh, presenting everything at the main island where the wharf is. So our containers there, they'll be um, presenting that to um, 
uh, two organizations in Tonga, the Civil Society and also the um, Friends of Tonga, two NGOs that we'll be working with. This year has been, it's been a hard year for Tongans. Could you reflect on how far the kingdom has come since January 15th? Difficult year for, for Tonga. And um, as you're aware, not long after the volcanic eruption, uh, we had COVID uh, hit the country as well. So, you know, it's been one thing after the other. Um, however, you know, Tongans are very resilient people and they find a way to survive. Um, the recovery effort is going well in Tonga. There's a number of uh, islands that had to be relocated. To, so there's going to be ongoing support required for these people. As you can imagine, um, they'll be having, um, you know, a displacement from their home villages will cause um, depression and anxiety for many of them. So we'll need services to support them and also the, the general day-to-day supports to help them as they, um, you know, settle down in a new place and try and um, go about their, their lives. But it, it'll take a, a long time for the ongoing, ongoing recovery. A community organiser in the autonomous Papua New Guinea province of Bougainville, who attended the COP27 in Egypt, says she felt let down by the lack of commitment to end mining fossil fuels. Ursula Rakova runs the civil society group Tulele Besa, which for many years has been endeavouring to move Kateri Islanders from their frequently flooding home atolls to the Bougainville mainland. She told Don Wiseman that she'd hoped that at the COP27 meeting, the large industrialised countries needed to show they can walk the talk. For me and Kateri, I was looking more at loss and damage because I know that the funding can help us. But, you know, I'm not confident when countries, the industrialized nations, will want to give money to loss and damage while at the same time they're continuing to extract fossil fuels. Because if they really want to save the earth, especially the smaller islands and atolls in the Pacific and in the globe, they will have to walk their talk. And the young people actually were expressing that. They said, you know, it's time for action. And COP28 theme was together for implementation. And if we are looking at implementation from all levels and all works of life, especially looking at local communities and the indigenous people's organizations from the very grassroots level, for us indigenous peoples, we we see that the nations who are actually extracting fossil fuels and, and other mineral resources really need to start acting now. If we could talk specifically about the work with the people from the Carterets. Now, I know it's been a struggle to get them to the mainland or the main island of Bougainville, to your place there that's provided by the Catholic Church at Tinputs, but you are hoping to move a significant number more in, in the near future. We have a total of 530 families from the cartridge, and Tulele Pisa's intention is to move 350 families off the island to mainland Bougainville. But we are not able to do this, and it, it's a really big struggle. We have only moved 10 families to permanent homes in Pimpots. We still have 20 families who, who are living in you know local material uh, little homes in, in Tiaruki. This is the second site. And we, we really want to build climate smart homes for them, meaning that we want those homes to be made of brick so that we are saving money, but at the same time we are building infrastructure that we, will withstand 
any other changes on onto the um, environment and the climate. But we cannot do that because we need finance. Um, and finance that should be coming to us is not coming to us. And, and it, it, we continue to struggle. It's now 15 years and we still not, do not have money for infrastructure. So this loss and damage money that's been agreed to, is that going to be any help for you? The loss and damage that has been agreed, we have not actually received any of that money as yet, but we would like to receive that money specifically for infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, we need to build homes so that 350 families from Cartridge can come in and live and and sustain themselves on mainland Bougainville. Let's just recap on the situation in the Cataracts because they have been very much at the forefront of the impacts of climate change, haven't they, in terms of sea level rise and gardens disappearing and that sort of thing? Yeah, for Cartridge, the shorelines continuing to decrease. Storm surges continue to wash away um, the, the shorelines. And then when it's king tide, salt water seeps into the island and it's very, very difficult to drain out. Even the trees that we, we plan to safeguard the sea from further intrusion onto the land, they are being uprooted. And it's very difficult for us to continue to maintain the island. We, we have a project on mangroves reforestation on Cartridge, but we will need to build sea breakers so that they safeguard the mangroves from uh, being uprooted by strong currents and sea level rise. The 350 families you want to move, what's the deadline? Ideally, when would you like them to be on the mainland? We would like to um, basically move all these families by 2030 at least. At least if we can move 275 families, we will be there and, and, and we will be continuing to build a sustainable lives for the islanders. The other thing I, I need to mention here is that we are losing our stable food crops. We have lost it already. And food security for us is a very, very big question because we, we don't have the necessary nutrients from the food crops that we need on cartridge. The authors of a recently released report on disadvantages faced by Pacific women in accessing retirement fund benefits are calling for reforms. The report by the Pacific Private Sector Development Initiative outlines how institutional arrangements can disadvantage women's entitlement to retirement benefits. Koroi Hawkins spoke with an initiative specialist on the economic empowerment of women, Sarah Boxall, about the findings of the report, which is entitled A Secure Retirement, Leveling the Playing Field for Women in the Pacific. So, I mean, some of what we see is typical, I guess, to superannuation and women's retirement across the globe, but we do see some particular trends in the Pacific. So we know that women are less likely to be in formal employment um, and therefore less likely to be members of retirement funds. And even when they are members of retirement funds, they're often earning lower wages or they're not able to access retirement funds because of their employment status. And so what we see is that women in the Pacific are less likely to be members, have lower balances, and also they live longer than men. So what we're seeing then is that they're actually at risk of being quite financially insecure when they're older. In um, I can't speak for other Pacific contexts, but is there an issue with employers honouring superannuation in the Pacific and and being honest about not just the, the normal payments, but also incentives for 
women to save? So there's a few, there's a sort of few elements to that. So one is um, actually what is in the retirement fund acts in countries is quite different. So in some cases, what you see in the act is actually exemptions for employers to pay contributions. And sometimes that's about the size of the company. And sometimes that's about particular sectors. So that's the first way in which you can see employers not paying contributions. There is also an issue with non-compliance that does come out in the study that you tend to see people in smaller organizations, family-run businesses, you know, there are often complaints that they are less likely to pay those sort of contributions. And it's also quite challenging, I think, for governments and retirement funds to actually monitor that and to ensure that there is compliance. In terms of um, sometimes people do get to the time when they can access these funds and retire, but is it is uh have is there been any research on how that money is then used for long term security? Like, I, I'm just aware that there've been people that just get out all this money and they just spend it on all sorts of things and it's gone like within within a very short period of time and for very little substance in terms of long term security financially. So the majority of cases, what happens is that there's sort of a lump sum payment at the end. So when you retire, you're able to access your full retirement fund benefit. And so obviously then how people choose to spend that you know, can be anything from, as you say, spending it all in one go or you know, making different plans. So one of the things we look at in the report specifically as it relates to women as well, is how are funds supporting people to have better financial literacy and better planning for retirement? And we note that, you know, one of the challenges faced by women, particularly in retirement funds, is a generally lower level of financial literacy and awareness of what their rights are and what the opportunities are. So we do see that, you know, it it can be that People then might spend the money and they might not have anything left. But that's sort of a broader issue, I guess, around financial literacy and planning in the Pacific. But it does have a specific impact in this case. What's the next step with this? What are you doing with this information now? And and how is that being implemented across the region to help women? So we've been working very closely with the Pacific Islands Investment Forum, which is the regional body that um, has members of all the retirement funds. And they've been really interested in this work. Um, We recently presented the study findings at their annual CEO forum in New Zealand, and they committed to setting up a women in super group. So this group will have representatives from the various members and they will be looking at some of the recommendations for reform. And so this group will then take forward this, working with the members to consider what the reforms suggest and what they might take forward. And some of the areas that are going to be looking at is some things around uh, sex disaggregated data. So a lot of the funds have data on their members. Some of them have really great data that they publish that looks at this by men and women, different age groups, different balances, and it allows them to have a better sense of who their members are, what their balances are, and what they might do to respond to that. Other areas that we're looking at initially are things around outreach. So how are you communicating to a broader range of people and potential members of your funds about how they can access it? And the third one is around 
the informal economy. So a lot of people in the Pacific are not formally employed. They don't have employer contributions, but nonetheless, they should be able to save for their retirement. A lot of the funds have already allowed voluntary contributions. There's some really great examples of funds really focusing on this in the region. And so we're looking at what currently exists in terms of access and outreach to informal people in the informal economy and how you can bring them into the retirement funds to help them prepare for their retirement. Coming back to the, the findings of the report, what would be the top three things that, that you'd like to see implemented from your recommendations in the next say, five to 10 years? I think the issue of um, access for people in the informal economy is a really significant one. So that, like I said, that would need to be looking at the acts and the regulations to facilitate that. And that would need to also be partnerships with sort of the funds themselves, but also that outreach to bring them in. Another area that we touch on in the report, which which would warrant some further attention, is around access to benefits, um, deceased benefits. So what we see is a lot of the regulation isn't clear on things like the rights of divorced women to access their funds, de facto relationships and same-sex relationships. That could be further clarified so that in the instance of, you know, a member passing on, there is, you know, it's much clearer um, who can benefit and access those retirement funds. And I think a third thing we'd really like to see is the funds themselves and some of their internal policies. So how are they looking at um, do they have women in their own leadership? You know, how are they represented within the industry that they're working in? And what can they do then within their policies and practices to make sure that they're setting up women-friendly products and services and really servicing that part of the market, which potentially is not yet fully developed? Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, appreciate this and um, all the best with the ongoing work. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time today. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Pafitaitele lava, unwele vayasu.